man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth. We broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields, and not the global economy that depends on all of these. An economy that also admittedly got us into this mess. And today we learn how it can get us out. It's a simple solution, but like many simple solutions, implementing it won't be easy. There is a case for doing something about pollution, but the way we've been going about it is the wrong way. Is there a case for the government to do something yes, about it? Yes, there is a case for the government to do something about it, because there's always a case for the government, to some extent, when what two people do affects a third party. If you are an American of a certain age, you probably recognize these voices. One is Nobel laureate Milton Friedman, considered by many to be the patron saint of free market economics. The other is Phil Donahue, a fairly liberal talk show host who, like Oprah Winfrey after him, hosted a popular daytime show from Chicago. But Donahue's heyday came in the 1970s and 80s, and this exchange took place in 1970 when he was still doing his show from Dayton, Ohio. Someone at the University of Chicago dug it up two years ago for an online discussion that they called, What Would Milton Friedman Do About Climate Change? They put that discussion on YouTube, and I summarized it in a story that I called, Ghost of Milton Friedman Materializes in Chicago, Endorses a Price on Carbon. You can find the piece on Ecosystem Marketplace. And if you find today's episode of Bionic Planet intriguing, I highly recommend you track it down and not just read my summary, but listen to the discussion in its entirety, because they really do an excellent job of explaining the challenge of dealing with externalities, which is a word you'll hear a lot of today. It's basically what happens when a factory dumps its pollution into a river or a hip-hop-loving neighbor plays his music too loud. And here's what Professor Friedman had to say about it. There is a case for the government protecting third parties, protecting people who have not voluntarily agreed to enter. So there's more of a case, for example, for uh, emission control than there is for airbags. Mm -hmm. But the question is, what's the best way to do it? And the best way to do it is not to have bureaucrats in Washington write rules and regulations saying that a car has to carry this, that, or the other. The best way to do it is to impose a tax on the amount of pollut pollutants emitted by a car and make it in the self-interest of, of the car manufacturers and of the consumers to keep down the amount of pollution in that way. You're listening to Bionic Planet. I'm your host, Steve Zwick, editor of Ecosystem Marketplace, and today we'll be examining the single most fundamental tool in the arsenal to slow climate change, 
namely A Price on Carbon. In a few minutes, we'll be speaking to Gernot Wagner, whose book Climate Shock offers as strong and as straightforward a case as any for tackling climate change by embedding its cost in the cost of production. It's a frightening story, but also a hopeful one. And it's a fun read, too. And it touches on everything, from the history of climate science to the apparent siren song of geoengineering. It goes everywhere, and it goes there well. And we'll be taking you there, too. But first... We'll always have Paris. We'll always have Paris, as in the Paris Agreement which was adopted by 195 countries in December and then formally signed today, Earth Day. But what exactly does the Paris Agreement do? The answer, a lot. And it should be front page news every day because there is that much in it to report. Unfortunately, it gets a blast press around these big days and then it fades away. Well, we promise not to do that. In fact, we promise to report some aspect of the Paris Agreement every week in this segment. Some days we'll dive into the agreement itself, and other days we'll revisit some other aspect of the talks to help you understand how they impact your life. Today's segment will be fairly short because the whole issue of carbon pricing is something we'll be revisiting again and again in the future, always coming at it from a different angle. And one of those angles will be the Carbon Pricing Leadership Coalition, which is headed by leaders from across the political spectrum, people like Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Chilean President Michel Bachelet, Ethiopian Prime Minister Haile Mariam de Seligen, French President Francois Hollande, German Chancellor Angela Merkel, and Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto. Now, I mention them specifically because they all appeared together on one panel at the Climate Talks, and we covered that event in an article that was called, appropriately enough, Six Heads of Government Call for Carbon Pricing which you can find on Ecosystem Marketplace. The title again, Six Heads of Government Call for Carbon Pricing. Again, we'll be covering that coalition in more detail in later podcasts. But I wanted to share just a few snippets of that December conversation with you before we speak with Gernot. Because I think that when you hear what these heads of government are saying, the conversation that Gernot and I had will make more sense and vice versa. You may find yourself revisiting their brief statements here or even searching for our coverage and diving in. I'm going to start with Justin Trudeau, in part because everyone seems to love this guy, but also because he touches on some issues here that will be coming up again and again and again in the future, namely the emergence of so-called subnational carbon trading or trading in and among states rather than nations, and also the fact that greening your economy doesn't mean trashing it. Now, I haven't edited this part, so it does go on a bit, about three minutes, but it's worth it. A lot of you may have noticed that over the past 10 years or so, uh, Canada has been uh, perhaps less enthusiastic than some uh, about addressing uh, climate change and its impacts. Uh, but even though at the federal level we haven't uh, necessarily uh, been uh, strong and active uh, partners in the fight against climate change with, uh, uh, alongside so many of our uh, colleagues and neighbors. At the subnational level, uh, our provinces have stepped up. 
we have four different provinces that represent about 86% of the Canadian economy that have actually moved towards putting a price on carbon. British Columbia has a world-class carbon tax uh, that is revenue neutral and that has been uh, really encouraging in a way that suits the British Columbian economy uh, the kind of innovative uh, actions by companies and individuals uh, that should be rewarded uh, in our, uh, our low-carbon economy that we're moving towards. Ontario and Quebec, our largest provinces, uh, have committed to a cap-and-trade uh, initiative uh, alongside California uh, that is also uh, recognizing that we need to put a clear price on carbon to signal to industry, uh, to producers, to uh, consumers, where we are going as a society and reward people who are making smarter decisions about including externalities. And even our province of Alberta, uh, which, as many of you will know, uh, uh, contains a large part of Canada's oil sands, uh, has, uh, with the change in government this spring, uh, taken significant steps uh, towards uh, demonstrating uh, that Canadians right across the country are committed to concrete actions on climate change, which includes a hard cap on emissions uh, from oil sands development, uh, but also uh, an ambitious price, uh, an ambitious uh, carbon tax. Uh, so we have subnational governments moving in the right direction in a broad variety of ways. And as President Hollande pointed out, there will be many different approaches that suit different economies, different geographies in how we move forward. What is most pressing is we now engage in a competition, friendly competition, uh, amongst different jurisdictions around the world about who can be most efficient uh, in uh, producing a low-carbon economy, in creating opportunities for its citizens and uh, for the world by extension, uh, to understand that reducing our carbon footprint isn't just good for the planet. It's also good for business and, most importantly, good for future generations in both environment and economy. Merci beaucoup tout le monde. You heard towards the end he used that word externalities. It's a word you're going to hear a lot on today's show. And if you don't know what it means now, I guarantee you will know what it means when you're finished. Here's Chilean President Michelle Bachelet. Environmental externalities cannot continue to be ignored by our countries. Cheap and dirty energy is not cheap for the planet or the health of our people. When green taxes are incorporated into our climate policies, we can harness market forces that can lead to profound changes in our emission patterns. Countries are taking action. New energy auctions in which all technologies compete on a level playing field have resulted in renewables growing explosively. Energy markets are undergoing dramatic change, and what we thought would happen in decades is happening right now. Indeed, carbon pricing combined with smart energy reform can be instrumental in unleashing clean technology and building the foundations for a low-carbon economy. And finally, Haile Mariam de Seligan, the Prime Minister of Ethiopia, makes the case as well, although he doesn't use that word, uh, externalities. He does touch on something that we will be exploring with Gernot, namely the role that carbon markets or carbon taxes, if it goes that route, 
can play in supporting new technologies. Many might wonder why a poor country such as Ethiopia would be interested in promoting carbon pricing. We have a, a number of reasons. I will mention the major ones. First, Ethiopia has an interest in seeing that climate change is effectively addressed. It suffers from the adverse impacts of climate change and climate-related disasters. There is already ample evidence that pricing carbon provides incentives and market signals for efficient utilization and production of energy and development of technologies in cost-effective manner. A number of countries globally are applying one or another form of carbon pricing. The technologies that will be stimulated because of carbon pricing will also enhance the health, energy, food, and water security of our people. Second, apart from st stimulating reduction of carbon emissions, pricing of carbon could potentially be a significant source of finance and technologies for supporting climate actions in countries like my own. You're listening to Bionic Planet, the podcast of the Anthropocene. Do you like what you've heard so far? Do you want to hear more? If so, be sure to subscribe to us and to like us, Bionic Planet, on iTunes. And give us a good review, because the more ears we get, the more funding we get. And right now, Bionic Planet has zero funding. It's literally a labor of love, and I'm the labor. Bionic Planet is written by me, produced by me, and hosted by me, although I will be harvesting content that we've generated on Ecosystem Marketplace. If all you do is subscribe to us, that's great. But if you want to help us materially, you can make a tax-deductible donation to Bionic Planet through Ecosystem Marketplace or Forest Trends, but be sure to let them know that it's to support Bionic Planet. If the tax deduction isn't that important to you, you can also support me directly through the Anthropocene. That's www.anthropocene.com, and that's A-N-T-H-R-O-P-O-Z, like zebra, I-N-E. Ultimately, I'd like to get this thing big enough to attract commercial advertising, because that means I'm reaching enough people to make it worth your while to support me, and if I'm reaching that many people, I'm getting the word out, and the word has to get out. Ultimately, what we're going to be exploring on this podcast is man's interaction with nature and our impact on our planet's living ecosystems. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, you can also email me at stevezwick at gmail.com. That's steve.zwick, Z like zebra, W-I-C-K, at gmail.com. Thank you. My next guest just left his position as lead economist with the Environmental Defense Fund to become research associate and lecturer on environmental science and public policy at Harvard University. His name is Gernot Wagner, and he's here because of his book, Climate Shock, The Economic Consequences of a Hotter Planet, which he co-wrote with Martin Weitzman, also of Harvard. The book has the distinction of being named both one of the best economics books by the Financial Times and among the books most likely to save the planet by the Independent Publisher Book Awards. 
I burned through it in a day because I couldn't put it down. They cover everything from the discovery of climate change over 100 years ago to the tragedy of the commons, to the price of carbon, to geoengineering. It's all in there. I caught up to Gernot via Skype when he was in Austria for the book's German release. Your core argument is that we should be paying at least $40 per ton of carbon dioxide emitted. But the problem is instead we're subsidizing emissions to the tune of about $15 a ton. So we're basically $55 off. That's your, your core. Pretty much, uh, yes. To be fair, right? So the $15 is global. Right. So this is right, half a trillion dollars worth of fossil fuel subsidies globally. Now, they're concentrated, right? So obviously it's, right, the Saudis and Venezuela and Iran right, are subsidizing fossil fuels more than the U.S. and the Euro- and Europeans are. Now, it doesn't mean that there's no subsidies in the U.S. and Europe, right? Mm-hmm. But most of them are, in fact, concentrated in oil-rich, oil-exporting countries, right? Now, that said, right, if you average out the half a trillion by how, how many tons we um, emit every year globally, it comes out to about $15 per ton of CO2 going the wrong direction. It is a negative externality. There's that word I warned you about at the beginning, externality. And I'd like to break away for a moment to offer a deeper dive into what that means. I'm going to play some audio from that panel discussion I mentioned earlier, the one at the University of Chicago. If you Google Ghost of Milton Friedman materializes in Chicago, you'll find my summary of that discussion, and it's worth listening to. Here's just an excerpt. The first person you'll hear is Steve Sikala, who is an assistant professor at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. Then you'll hear Bob Inglis, who was a Republican congressman for the U.S. state of South Carolina, but he lost because he believed in climate science. The third person is Michael Greenstone, who is the U of C's Milton Friedman Professor of Economics. simple explanation is that an externality is when the exchange between two parties has an effect on a third party who's not participating. Right? So my students in my class who just spent three hours with me lecturing about externalities are like, why didn't you just say that? It's really simple. <laughs> um, but the, you start with the logic for you know, what are the benefits of market? Say, say I'm selling steel and, and, and you're buying it, and I sell it to you for, for 100 bucks. What, what does that mean, right? That I'm selling steel and he's buying it for 100 bucks. That exchange means that it cost me less or up to $100 to produce that steel, right? And he, that steel is worth at least $100 to him because he always has the option to walk away, okay? If he were made better off by having $100 in his pocket, we wouldn't engage in this exchange. Okay? So there's some mutual benefit of exchange that occurs when people unre- you know, unregulated in, in some market exchange these things. We're allocating resources to the people who value them most. Okay. So anytime someone advocates for a tax or a regulation and, and people say, you know, hold on, there are losses associated with it, what they're talking about is to what extent does that tax or regulation interfere with this exchange that, that we've just negotiated between the two of us. Right? Okay, what's missing in that logic is when there's an effect on a, a third party who's not participating in this exchange, okay? So say for this $100 ton of steel that I'm selling, I inflict damages on Michael through my pollution, right? I've got to you know, burn coal and you know, he has asthma, okay? So for every ton of steel, it costs him $20 in health. When I sell 
steel for $100 a ton, I'm not compensating Michael for the damage that I do. I compensate every one of my other input suppliers. I have to buy the coal. I have to buy the steel. All of that exchange is based on mutually beneficial willing exchange. Okay? But there's no market for the pollution that I'm inflicting on Michael. What does it mean that I'm doing $20 of damage to him? It means that if there were a market, and I said, hey, I, you know, I, I'd like to make this steel, how does 10 bucks sound? You'd say, I'd rather not have the pollution because 10 bucks doesn't make it worth my while. Okay? If I said, you know, well, how about 25? It says, pollute away. Right? There's been a mutually beneficial exchange between the two of us because I'm compensating him for his pollution. And you used a term one time when we were talking when I was here at the IOP. It was pretty strong. You said yeah. it's really theft. It is theft, okay? That, that's a loaded term, but if someone has a better way of describing and taking something from someone without their consent and without compensating them, I'd be happy to use that term, right? But you can't, you know, go before the judge and say, Your Honor, I didn't steal it. I just took it without compensating them or without their consent, <laughs> yes. right? And that's exactly what it is. When I sell you something for $100 where I didn't pay for all of my inputs, you're, you're not paying for the full cost of what you did. Yeah, so Michael, um, Governor Perry was in uh, New Hampshire last go-round, and he said uh, that we can't price carbon dioxide, essentially. I'm not quoting him exactly, but he said we can't price carbon dioxide because to do so would raise energy rates. Um, so tell me if I said the right thing in USA Today when I responded to that. Um, but tell me what you would say to him. He, he said, he made the point, which is a, a, a tr correct yeah. point, right? That if you, if you stop this theft and make it so that Steve has to put the cost in his steel, the price for me goes up. Or if we apply that to energy, the price of energy goes up, right? That's just an inexorable fact. Yeah, so let's just pick up on Steve's example uh, and apply it to climate change. What's happening when we turn on the lights uh, and we run a, in the background, run a coal plant or when we drive our car is that carbon dioxide is being emitted into the air. And that is sprinkle, sprinkling around damages in Bangladesh, in Los Angeles, in Houston, even in Austin where uh, Governor Perry works. Yeah. Uh, and those costs are real, and they're, uh, and they're not being reflected in the price that I pay when I fill my gas tank or turn on the light. Uh, and so, actually, I think I would welcome Governor Perry to come here today, and we could talk about it. But the main point is those costs are real, and they're occurring. And if he or the electricity company were to take account of them, it is true that energy prices would be higher. Right. But there would no longer be these innocent parties who are minding their own business and having the climate change around them. And there you have it. That to me is the single simplest explanation of what an externality is. Now, back to Gernot. Uh, it's a negative externality. It ought to have a positive price. Um, I mean, this is <laughs> this is literally the one law we have in economics, right? So economists we like to be like you know we like to be like physicists. Oftentimes we are just not, right? So humans just don't behave like atoms in a vacuum. We don't, um, but we do have one law. <laughs> it's called the law of demand. I mean, technically it's the law of compensated demand. I won't bore you with the, the difference here, but uh, really what it says is is price goes up, demand goes down. There's only two exceptions we've ever discovered that actually 
are in fact exceptions. And those two exceptions um, are not CO2. For CO2, it's the same as for most every commodity out there. You increase the price and demand goes down. Mm-hmm. So right, we have too much CO2. We need to price it. Full mm-hmm. stop. Mm-hmm. That's the answer. You also mentioned the challenge that uh, former Nigerian President Goodluck Jonathan had when mm-hmm. he stopped fuel subsidies in in 2012. What what uh, happened? What happened there? And is it you know? Well, his good luck ran out. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so there were suddenly riots on the streets uh, when he in fact decreased uh, subsidies on petrol. Now, of course, if your population is used to having just those subsidies and the price of gasoline goes up right, overnight in that case, which of course was not the most politically astute move, uh, you will have protests, right? Um, same happens in Iran, same happens, what happened in Saudi Arabia, right? Um, of course. Um, now, that doesn't make it the right thing to do, right? It's still a step backwards to be subsidizing fossil fuels. Or, or at least in the, in the wrong direction, because we should be paying for the damage we inflict on others and not getting paid to inflict it. But, but you're not against subsidies in principle. Well, there's also sort of economics 102, let's say. Uh, much like there is a negative uh, spillover effect of CO2 on everybody else, right? So you or I board a plane, uh, 7 billion people fit, pay for the cost. But then there's also a flip side. There is There are positive externalities. There are learning by doing externalities. This is sort of economics 102, right? It's, uh, it's not sort of the most obvious thing to say. Uh, but it turns out when you sit in your garage and you tinker uh, with the next great invention, you don't consider the fact that you are creating shoulders for others to stand on, right? You basically, you only consider the benefits that accrue to you personally. You don't consider the positive externalities, and there are positive externalities of new inventions, right? There's a new technology out there, and renewables in many ways, sadly, um, are still very much new technologies at this point, uh, they deserve a subsidy. But then there's also the Solyndra argument about the solar company that got massive subsidies and went bust because it couldn't compete with the new solar technologies. There's a school of thought that says subsidies of any kind distort the market and prevent it from working its magic. Um, any truth to that? Well, sort of, right? And every time you mention Solyndra, I would mention Tesla. Right, so uh, turns out, or SpaceX for that matter. This is actually this story just came out, which is actually pretty fascinating. NASA essentially saved SpaceX from uh, certain demise, uh, and uh, same with a Department of Energy loan that went to uh, Tesla, which Tesla, of course, has repaid by now. Uh, but uh, there too, right? So yes, picking winners is hard. Turns out. And arguably, right, venture capitalists are better at that than the U.S. government. No surprise there. So Lindra demonstrated there is a lot of learning to be done when it comes to um, looking at these very new technologies uh, that are, in fact, long shots often, right? If it were, if it were a sure bet, right, there would be no need for, for subsidies. There would be plenty of money um, supporting that particular technology already. Well, sometimes... It is, in fact, a long shot. And by the way, what, what, what Solyndra really showed, actually, was how fantastically cheap solar photovoltaic technology has gotten very, very quickly. 
you go into a lot of detail on how we can uh, quantify uncertainties and probabilities and how you believe these should influence the actual price on carbon. And we'll, we'll, um, we'll get into those details later. Uh, but I'd like to focus now on your doomsday scenario. You make a very strong case for there being a 10% probability that we'll see a 6 degrees Celsius increase, or about 11 degrees Fahrenheit, if we don't change soon. But that means we also have a 90% probability that we won't go higher than that. So why should we all be paying a price on carbon now? We take out homeowner's insurance or fire insurance or life insurance for probabilities much, much lower than 10%. There's some fairly um, involved um, complex scientific um, ventures out there, including one sponsored by the European Union, European Commission. It's called Helix. It's basically climate scientists coming together, trying to estimate what will happen uh, degree by degree of warming. And, you know, like one degree is pretty easy, mainly because we're already there, right? So we can already estimate the consequences. Mm -hmm. Well, 1.5 degrees, um, can wrap our heads around and figure out what, what should happen, what will happen. Uh, then two degrees is already a lot harder, but at least it's, you know, most of it is in fact quantifiable. Like, you know, two and a half, three degrees is already a lot harder. And frankly, that project too basically ends at six degrees. Uh, and simply it's just, you know, they throw their hands in the air and say, look, like, catastrophe is catastrophe. There's not much more you can add. Um, so we just, we, we just, A, don't know enough, frankly, and it's going to be so bad anyways, right? At four or five degrees already, what point is there looking at? At, at six degrees. And we are, meanwhile, looking at at least a 10% probability of hitting that amount of global average warming, right? And that's, mm. yeah, that's, again, that's the shock and climate shock. And you also go into a lot of detail on the history of climate science and how we've known about this for over a century. And I won't go into that here, but I would like to get into the history of the economic thought behind all this and specifically focus on a man named Arthur Pigou. Uh, I've never read his stuff directly, but I've seen him cited and paraphrased all over the place. And I wanted to read your paraphrase here because it, it does get to the core of why you say we need a price on carbon. Uh, first, you point out that the average American emits about 20 tons of CO2 per year. You argue for a price of about $40 a ton. And again, we'll get to the reasoning for that price later, but it translates into either $800 per person per year or 35 cents per gallon at the filling station on average. Here's your summary of what Pigou says. You say, quote, Pigou's crucial insight was that we ought to see and pay these costs right then and there at the pump. That's the only way to create the right incentives and lead us to incorporate the full cost into our daily decisions and stop privatizing benefits while socializing costs. Can you tell us a little bit about Pigou and then explain why he argues it's so important to charge at the point of sale? Yep. Uh, so, I mean, first of all, Pigou did not, in fact, talk about CO2. Right, right. He, he spoke about rabbits overrunning a meadow, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> so, uh, and... And this is actually, this is the fascinating thing, right? The, the, the person, the, the economist coming up with a solution for what to do about climate change 
is never going to win a Nobel Prize for um, in economics because he died a decade before the first prize was given out, right? I mean, this is uh, much like climate science itself. It's sort of 19th century stuff. Uh, even the solution has been known for over 100 years. And yes, it is, in fact, making sure that everybody pays for the full cost that his or her actions, in this case, when it comes to climate change, global warming, are causing, right? So, and, I mean, it's, it's sort of one of these sort of such obvious concepts. I mean, there's a, <laughs> there's, there's a Wikipedia page dedicated uh, uh, to privatizing benefits, socializing costs. Now, that's frankly what led to the Great Recession last decade, right? Not too long ago. And that's exactly what's going on here, right? So on a planetary scale, we are privatizing benefits, we are socializing the costs. I get the benefit of flying. Seven billion people people are paying for the cost. That is crazy. Now, of course, you know, one can in fact voluntarily say, okay, well, you know, let me let me spend the twenty, forty dollars to offset my personal carbon emissions voluntarily. Of course, that's possible, right? Now, that's not the point, right? We can't rely on the you know ten thousand environmentalists who would voluntarily offset their emissions. It has to be the billion people every year who board flights to not voluntarily get the chance to do that, uh, but to actually be compelled to do it. And of course, that requires policy, right? And the Pigouvian insight is in fact that that only makes a difference when it happens right then and there when you make that decision. But will that actually reduce emissions or are people going to just pay and keep flying? Like, you know, what is then the solution, if not a price? Well, you know, a ban, right, may well be the solution. Now, that's literally saying there is an infinite cost of you boarding a flight, which is clearly not the right answer, right? I mean, the, the, first of all, yeah, there must be sort of life and death situations when it's actually fine to board the plane, right? Let's start with that. Um, and then more importantly, well, there are not, in fact, infinite costs. Now, there are you know, probably much higher costs than the $40 per ton. That's clear too, right? That the right number may well be a lot higher if you take all these sort of unknown unknowns and all these uncertainties uh, seriously. Uh, then the right price may well be higher than 40 bucks. Right? I don't know whether it's 400 or 4,000, but you know, it's certainly higher than, four, four than 40 bucks. Now, um, banning flights is clearly not the right answer. Actually, so possibly a simpler example, right? Plastic bags, right? Like, <laughs> we know they have a cost, right? We know that every single plastic bag, right, like, is useful up to a point, uh, which is, of course, part of the point, in fact. Uh, but, of course, there are, in fact, costs to producing the plastic bag that are included in the price and frankly to disposing and most more often than not improperly disposing the plastic bag right i mean ask the seagull right caught in one what what, what he or she thinks <laughs> about about the plastic bag um now what's the cost of the plastic bag well again probably not infinitely much right now should we have back taxes should we have fees every time you walk into a store and basically just uh, mindlessly uh, don't think about it just get the plastic bag of course we should right and it turns out these things work beautifully so you know island uh, uh, was among the first that introduced this plastic tax um 15 euro cents initially well and bag demand went down by something like 80 percent but price isn't the only thing that changes people's behavior and you talk about the copenhagen theory of change which is more about 
doing the right thing for its own sake? Well, they're basically sort of two broad and very much competing theories in how to evoke social change. So one is um, what we sort of somewhat glibly call the Copenhagen theory of change. So question is, right, so sort of simple observation, there's, you know, over half of residents in Copenhagen bike to work. Now, why in the world is that the case, right? So first of all, it's pretty darn cold up there in the winter, right? So it's not like Copenhagen is such a pleasant place to work in the dead of winter. So why do so many people bike to work? Well, it turns out it is one of these things that takes, that has taken decades um, to develop, but frankly, it's sort of this virtuous cycle, you know, virtuous cyclists, if you will, but certainly virtuous cycle, right, of basically, you know, says initially there were a few individual bikers, as there always are, right, the guys in the spandex suits, and right, eventually it became you know, sort of easier and cheaper in sort of all senses of the term to start biking, so more people started biking, and then the first bike paths came came in and being and well that that meant you didn't have to take out as extra life insurance just to sort of be able to bike to work uh right? and eventually there were more bike paths and more and more people started biking and sort of this virtuous cycle where individual steps lead to small social steps that again leads to more individual steps and so on and you know, in many ways we, we see that in new york city now actually when it comes to biking right mayor bloomberg put in like 500 miles of bike paths in New York City. I mean, you can go up and down Fifth Avenue a couple of times to get to 500 miles. Um, and a pretty amazing change. And yes, we see many, many more people biking in New York City now because it turns out you can actually bike now without getting killed. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, it's one thing leading to the next. Um, and that's sort of the hopeful story of how you get from you know, individual action individual steps taken very often by environmentalists um, in sort of the name of public good, uh, leading to public policy changes, which then lead to ever more individual changes. And you get this virtuous cycle um, that could right, sort of potentially in sort of, let's say, extreme form lead from, let's say, right, a bunch of people recycling, right, sort of environmentalists on the, on the one end, and on the other say, a price on CO2, right? the, the kind of policy that we know is necessary. Now, here's the opposing theory to this, and frankly, one that economists are inherently more comfortable with. So it turns out day has only 24 hours, right? There are trade-offs. There are finite numbers of, of dollars going around, right? So everyone's budget is, in fact, constrained in one way, shape, or form, what economists call budget constraints, they are real, right? We don't have infinite sums to spend on everything we like. We need to make decisions. We need to take um, individual steps sometimes that lead in one direction and not in the other. Mm -hmm. um, and that, frankly, leads to sort of this very real, uh, I would say, fear in a sense. I mean, sort of a personal fear of mine that, frankly, individual steps of you know doing good won't actually lead to more, but in fact are akin to a step backwards to what is actually necessary. Mm -hmm. Right. So you know again, twenty four hours in a day. Right. So you know I, you know, for example, right, my wife is a gynecologist. She works on um, 
few women dying in childbirth, right? An enormously difficult issue. Um, and he works on family planning issues, right? It's a very, very important issue. So now, you know, what, I spend maybe, what, three minutes a week thinking mm -hmm. about that particular problem. Now, see, you know, she's a better human being, so she spends four minutes mm -hmm. a week thinking about what I do for a living. Um, but, you know, that's about it, right? We all have lives, or you know, at least mm -hmm. we have kids, right? So, uh, so <laughs> there are constraints. That's this sort of the single action bias, the crowding right, out right. bias, that one thing doesn't, in fact, lead to the next, but that one thing sort of sometimes is the last thing or the only thing you do, right? And you basically, you refuse the plastic bag at the checkout counter um, and you, you, know, you basically declare global warming solved for the day and you go on about your life and not worry about everything else right? or anything else. And that's, that's a real problem. And frankly, you know, I don't know which of these two theories will prevail. In fact, both of them are valid or very valid in certain situations. And the big, big question is, right, under which circumstances is which theory, which of these two theories going to apply? That's mm -hmm. question one. And of course, I mean, the second question, I mean, how do you get from uh, potential for this crowding out bias uh, toward this Copenhagen theory of change, where basically do you have these, these virtuous cycles? How does the political economy work out to get from where we are today to where we need to be? And what do we need to do uh, to make that happen? There's a famous experiment they did in Israel where kindergartens or it might have been preschools, I forget which, um, they started charging parents who were late to pick up their kids and it backfired because parents just started coming late and they figured, hey, I'm paying for it. No guilt. So, so this is some, yes, this is this infamous study, right? Mm -hmm. Of basically sort of behavioral psychologists or behavioral economists, even uh, sort of studying what happens once you start introducing fees, right? And so the story goes that well, there was this social norm that you pick up your kid at you know say 5 p.m. in the afternoon or in the, in the evening, um, and well, they observed that sometimes parents were late and that was a pain, so they started charging right for every minute that the parent was late, let's say like a buck a minute, let's say. What, what did they observe? Well, they observed that that social norm suddenly broke down. It was no longer the case that most people picked up their kid at five o'clock. And, you know, on occasion, sometimes somebody was late. Um, but what happened now was that lots of people started being late. It just charged, or they just paid the dollar, right? When I look at this, I am sort of of, of two minds here. So, so yes, of course, right? That social norm just broke down. First of all, really what that means, you're not charging enough, right? A second thing to say, frankly, is so what? I mean, frankly, okay, so I have a five-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old. Um, I, I appreciate flexibility when it comes to childcare, right? I would like to pay for the privilege to sometimes be flexible. As in other words, on occasion, right, I am not able to leave when I thought I was able to. And I would appreciate the extra 5, 10, 15 minutes um, of finishing up that right one paragraph or one email or you know one tweet or whatever the case may be. Um, pick up my kids slightly late. And frankly, of course, right, there are costs of that behavior. So I should be paying the child care provider for that. So in other words, really what this particular study observed uh, was that Parents appreciate flexibility. They are willing to pay for it if the costs to the daycare of keeping the kid one minute longer are in fact not covered by the fee that they're charging. Well, then they're doing it wrong, right? They should charge a higher fee. Mm -hmm. But if, 
if that's the case, right? Once that's the case, um, and you create the possibility for parents to be more flexible, show up a minute later and pay a buck a minute or whatever it was um, to show up a minute late. Fantastic, right? Mm -hmm. Social welfare, social well-being just increased because you're creating that added flexibility. In other words, right? Econ 101, once again, right? Yeah. Turns out price goes up, demand goes down. That works, right? If you increase the price to infinity, right? If you ban pickup, if you ban late pickups, uh, you're not even creating the option, then yes, people turn, tend to be on time. Um, and if you start charging for pickups, that's in fact a lower price than infinitely much. Well, sometimes people appreciate the flexibility. To me, this is also a reminder that we need to make a distinction between creating an incentive, which sounds like a cold calculation, and creating awareness or a focus, like the plastic bag fee does. Um, and this is actually uh, something we found at Ecosystem Marketplace when looking at corporate behavior in the voluntary markets, the voluntary carbon markets. We looked at companies that buy carbon offsets voluntarily, meaning not because they have to, and we found that, contrary to popular belief, they weren't, quote-unquote, buying their way out of their obligations or using a get-out-of-jail-free get card, but they were, for the most part, companies that had already reduced their emissions dramatically, and they were using offsets exactly the way they're supposed to namely to get to zero net emissions or to create an internal price on carbon explicitly to make their divisions and managers and everybody along the line more consciously aware of the emissions. Absolutely, right? I mean, <laughs> I would sort of call this sort of the frying pan effect, right? Like you whack someone over the head mm -hmm. and they become aware of it. Uh, the decision to sort of start thinking about what it takes to internalize the cost of CO2 is in fact a C-level decision, right? This is not something sort of the lowly plant manager says, oh, well, let's just make that happen. It is, of course, a much broader uh, decision with, with much broader reverberations, right, throughout the company. Then it's the, there's the question of how do you send the right signal throughout every level of the company? And frankly, pricing works beautifully in that way. You know, Microsoft is a good example of a place yeah. that has an internal capital trade system. And yes, they are offsetting their remaining emissions, not because they have to, they don't, but because they are trying to be good corporate citizens and are basically saying, look, we are trying to minimize our CO2 uh, footprint as it is. And what we can't minimize, what we can't, in fact, eliminate, we are offsetting by spending right, the tens of millions of dollars that it takes to buy voluntary offsets in order to offset our emissions completely and essentially you know, be carbon neutral. Mm -hmm. But then there's also, well, A, the question, what price are the companies paying? That's, mm -hmm. that's a big one, right? And it turns out Microsoft, in fact, is buying renewable energy credits which turn out to be very, very cheap per right. ton of CO2, sort of a buck or two. Frankly, it's still $2 more than most others are paying. So, you know, that's good too, right? Their internal price was a lot higher. Which is, of course, right? which is of course good too, right? Now, all that said, right? Big question, right? Even someone as big as Microsoft or right? even someone as big as Walmart, let's say, or Apple or whoever it is, 
right? They themselves are not going to solve climate change either, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you and I can't can solve it with our individual actions. Well, Microsoft and Walmart can't either. Now, they are now more ready than their competitors to be facing an environment where carbon is in fact priced nationwide. If Microsoft taking these voluntary steps makes them more likely to be advocating for a national global price on CO2, fantastic. And that wraps up the first half of this long and very involved discussion with Gernot Wagner, as well as this edition of Bionic Planet. Be sure to check back next week when we'll pick up where we left off and look at the factors that determine a fair and effective price on carbon. We'll also examine the relative pluses and minuses of a carbon tax versus cap and trade. If you liked what you heard, be sure to subscribe to Bionic Planet on iTunes and give us a good review. The more people listen to us, the stronger we become. And in the weeks and months ahead, we'll be diving ever deeper into the complex relationship between man and nature in this new epoch known as the Anthropocene. I'm Steve Zwick. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 